0: So, on April 9th, 1940, a small peninsula country of Denmark faced a somewhat impossible task. The country of Germany and their army had surrounded all the seaports in this small country and were waiting at the border to attack. Two hours into the resistance that Denmark could put up against such a foe, King Christian X of Denmark conceded two hours into the battle. Denmark simply could not stand against such an enemy. Now, a few hundred miles further to the west, you had actually a number of countries that bordered Germany. You had Belgium, the Netherlands, the small country of Luxembourg, and France. Now, they had put together a group to stand firm against Germany, including even the British Expeditionary Forces. So they wanted to be ready, to be able to stand against Germany. They thought they were ready. But on May 10th, one month after the attack on Denmark, one month in, May 10th, 1940, Germany surprised the defenses by landing in gliders and parachuting on top of the earthen dam that the Allies had thought was really impenetrable and overrunning the Belgian border in a matter of hours, and the entire country of Belgium in 18 days. This is where we learn of the hundreds of thousands of those who surrendered in the overtake of Belgium and France, and the 350,000 British forces that had to be evacuated at Dunkirk. So what went wrong there? Denmark was isolated. You know, it didn't really matter how committed or well-equipped they were because they were so small. How could they stand against Germany? They were completely on their own against the mid-20th century's most fearsome opponent. The Allied forces in Belgium were anticipating an eventual war, and their goal was to stand firm, holding back the German forces. But unfortunately, they were just not ready. Due to tactical errors and the enemy's brilliant schemes, they were unable to stand. And all they could do was retreat and live to fight another day. Now, why am I telling you about Denmark and the Allies a little over 80 years ago? Well, Denmark couldn't stand because they were alone. And the Allies couldn't stand because they weren't ready. Neither the Allies nor Denmark were able to stand firm against the evil power of their day. Today's passage is about standing firm in the face of evil. Indeed, earlier in this letter, Paul reminds us of that very fact in Ephesians 5 15 through 16. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Surely the days we live in are just as evil as those. How do we stand? Well, our passage tells us. So if you haven't yet opened your Bibles to Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, please go ahead and do that. It is found on page 979 of the Bibles underneath your chairs. We'll be reading verse 10 through 18a of Ephesians 6. Let's look together with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let's first notice how we are approaching this passage. If you want to grab your outline, you can see the first several verses are focused on the idea of standing firm. So this is Paul's command To stand firm. Then we'll look at each piece of the armor, the equipment to stand firm. And then lastly, how this is a call for us to stand firm. So, starting with the command, Paul's command to stand firm, Paul begins this section by saying, finally. So, a quick reminder that this passage comes in a context, right? In this case, Paul is wrapping up Ephesians. So his thoughts are interwoven with the rest of the letter. In many ways, he's referring back to and summarizing things mentioned earlier in Ephesians. And we will see how they relate as we go through today's passage. Let's keep that in mind. The next thing we want to see is Paul walking logically through how to stand and then giving us the reason why to stand. And that makes good sense, right? He exhorts the Ephesian church to stand and then reminds them of why. Well, how does he tell them to stand? Well, he starts with this phrase, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. But what does this mean? He seems to be saying the same thing twice, being the first strength is in the Lord and the second is of his might. It's easy just to to kind of roll past that and say Paul's using some exuberant language. And that could certainly be the case, but here's another take on it. I think this nuance adds a little more meaning. Your be strong can really be interpreted as be made strong. The New Testament Greek scholar Bill Mount says it this way. He says, grow strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. That has a bit of a, a different feel to it, right? Paul's exhortation is to grow strong toward the Lord that we can only achieve that growth in his strength, with, which logically makes sense. But then also notice the reference to God's power, being made strong, and the strength of his might. This language must remind us of Paul's prayer back in the first part of our letter. Let's flip back a few pages to chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and focus in on verse 19 in the middle of Paul's prayer. I'm just going to read through it quickly and slow down for that section. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, this power referenced here for us to grow in, this power for us to grow in strength, this power is God's resurrection power. Grow strong. In the Lord, in the strength of his resurrection power. That's pretty helpful. So, in this power, this resurrection power, Paul calls the church to put on the armor. Then, after laying out his reason why, he repeats the command again in verse 13 put on the whole armor of God. So, the obvious question to ask from there would be well, what, what is this armor? Which, of course, we're going to be looking at in the second section of our outline. So for now, we note those statements for what they are, Paul's further command. And all this, the strength and the armor so that we, the church, can stand. Look at verse 11, that you may be able to stand. And again, in verse 13, essentially, he says the same thing, that you can stand, able to withstand, to stand firm. So Paul's command to stand firm is clear. And then he tells us how. Well, now look look at the reason why. Sandwiched in the middle of verses 10 through 14, look with me at verses 11 and 12 to see the why to stand. He says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So why do we need to be able to stand? Why do we need to put on this armor? Because the devil has schemes. He's a deceiver and a liar from the beginning in the garden. He tricks us. He tempts us to greed, to jealousy, to bitterness, This is what the devil and the power of darkness excel at. They're known as his schemes because they work. And Paul's reminder to the Ephesians is they're, they're not fighting people around them. That's not where the battle is. But that is what it looks like. Remember, in the early days, the Ephesian church, Acts 19 is from, the silversmiths in town started a riot trying to get a mob to attack Paul and the other Christians. So when the Ephesian church reads this letter and they think of their enemies, they think of real faces and real names, real people in their city who perhaps want them dead. So Paul reminds them no, 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 it is not flesh and blood that we battle against, but rather rulers, authorities. Cosmic powers of this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil. That's what Paul is talking about here. Years ago, I read the story of a church plant in Colorado, seemingly planted amidst an awful spiritual battle. The pastor spoke of of, of witchcraft and and satanic forces hell-bent against his church and then techniques for combating those forces of evil and how this fellowship had become a a thriving megachurch by that day's standards as a result of that battle. It was very interesting, but it read like a fictional novel to me. Spiritual warfare like that just seemed distant from where I was. I didn't didn't face battles like the ones he spoke of as being a normal part of the church. And maybe that's how you feel. You don't really sense any battles in the sky between angels and demons, like those portrayed in Frank Peretti's 1980s bestseller, This Present Darkness, named after our passage. You may even feel like the whole kind of spiritual battle subject is just a little too medieval. Medieval. Reminds you of eras of of superstition and ignorance. When you hear the language of Ephesians 6 then, what do you think? Spiritual battles are real. Paul talks about it. And, And it's not in isolation, right? Back to the passage we already read from chapter 1. I highlighted in the prayer. Remember what he says? He says, Jesus was seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Spiritual language. And in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And this idea of cosmic powers and rulers appears well beyond uh, the pages of Ephesians. Romans 8, one of my favorite passages on God's love, verses 38 through 39, you don't need to turn there, but listen to this. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Point being that this just isn't isolated or peripheral. The spiritual dominion and authorities exist. This is just basic reality according to apostolic teaching. Certainly we hear that even more as we think of Jesus encountering demons and evil spirits throughout his ministry on earth. So what exactly are these forces here in Ephesians 6? Well, we don't know a whole lot beyond what we're spoken of, beyond what is spoken of here in Ephesians 6. We know the forces are real. We know they have power on earth. They are stronger than we are. And we know they report to the father of lies. The devil. So when Paul commands the Ephesian church to stand firm, he is first stating how they can stand and reminding them it is the strength of the power of the Lord that enables their standing. And as he reminds them of why, that should just reassure them that being in the Lord isn't just a good way to stand firm. It's the only way to stand firm. So what about us? Are we we trusting in the Lord only in his strength against the schemes of the devil? Are you leaning on the Lord in prayer, seeking his wisdom? Or are you depending on your your own grit, your own power, willpower to defeat Satan's schemes? You see, the, the minute you choose your own power, his scheme has literally won. That's what he wants. He wants us to lean on ourselves, turn inward when trials come and forget that it's the Lord who gives us every strength for the battles we are in. So when I am am holding a grudge against a brother or sister in the Lord, bitterness and anger is sin. Satan's scheme has won. When you linger over thoughts of self-pity, or lustfulness, you have believed the lie that the Lord isn't giving you what you need and his scheme has won. When we let fly with what we really think about a coworker or a classmate who treats us badly, or maybe one we just don't like, our slander and unkind words are selfish sin and his scheme has won. Brothers, sisters, we need to stand firm in the Lord against Satan's schemes. And how do we do this? By putting on the whole armor of the Lord. The equipment to stand firm. Now before we dig in, I want you to note how Paul starts up by restating his command. Again, he says, stand therefore, which is worth noting his repetition. is the fourth time Paul references this in this short passage. And there are two things to note, particularly in our context. The first is that the armor of God isn't designed for individual use. We have to kind of unravel our American individualistic understanding when we read Scripture, especially in passages like this, when we're tempted to interpret this section like pieces of armor we individually put on. No, no, the language is collective. The letter was to a church as a whole. The exhortation is for the whole church, not individuals in the church. Secondly, this is not intended to be comprehensive. As any Roman historian would point out, these are not all the available pieces of a soldier's outfit. And certainly we can also very quickly see really great things that are missing from our list. So Paul isn't trying to communicate some special mixture of perfect items to protect us. Instead, Paul's really making reference to a number of items that come to us as a picture of the strength and might of God. Now, after all, this is his armor. It is the armor to stand strong. So let's move in order the six items we find in our passage this morning. One, the belt of truth. Two, the breastplate of righteousness. Three, the shoes of readiness for the gospel of peace. Four, the shield of faith. Five, the helmet of salvation. And six, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So first, having fastened on the belt of truth. What is it about truth that Paul puts this at the front of the list. You might note that truth is foundational. It's, it's fundamental. It's something that we build on. You, you can't really have the other items in the list without truth. I mean, what is, what is righteousness without the truth? Certainly one cannot communicate gospel if one doesn't first know the truth. Faith isn't worth much of anything if it is lodged in falseness or in lies. And there is no salvation. There is no word of God without the truth. So if we consider the importance of this foundation, it makes sense that Paul aligns it with a belt, something to to kind of hold it up, hold it all together, to bind, connect, to enable the actions of the soldier. And truth is in short supply. We may think of that in our day, but we really should not assume that means truth was better off in the last generation or in another culture, because the reality is truth is never popularized in the broader culture, because culture is worldly, and the world opposes the truth. Here at Christ's Proclamation, we value truth greatly. I mean that in the sense that all we do, not just the elders or the preaching, we understand the need for us to be anchored to the truth. We know that part of the reason you came through the doors of this church is because you value the truth. Now, of course not perfectly, but you know that we're doing our best here to be preaching and teaching simply what the Word of God says. So let's, as a body, together, continue to prioritize and champion the truth. First found in the word of God. And where is it applicable? In our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools. Let's prize the truth of the gospel over the false idolatry and confusion of our culture and our day. The second piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness. We see Paul's actually importing an Old Testament passage here. It's not the only piece of armor to have a correlation in the Old Testament. So let, let's flip over to Isaiah 59 to look at a passage together. Isaiah 59, this is on page 619 of the Bibles in your chairs. And as you turn over to this passage, it might be helpful to define words. We hear the word righteousness often, I was always helpful to review what does that really mean. Righteousness is the quality. It's the state of being morally upright or justified. And of course, righteousness is not something we bring to the table. It's something foreign to us. The theologians actually use the term alien righteousness. It's foreign to us. It's, it's outside of us. It has to be imported in. And the setting here in Isaiah 59 is the Lord seeing there is no justice with man, but only wickedness and falseness. Jumping into the passage at verse 14, we'll take a look at what Isaiah 59 says. Verse 14, follow along. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness can't enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Well, this gives us a helpful perspective on the Lord's armor, doesn't it? I mean, first of all, it's his armor. We get to put on his righteousness. This is what we have when we become followers of Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. But it's also helpful to see how this isn't some individually acquired item, right? Now the breastplate of righteousness coming from God means it's, it's for all of us as Christians. We, we bear it together and we wear it in the daily battle. We realize it is, it is protection for our hearts because inside of us, we know that we're not righteous on our own. So unless it is God's righteousness, we have no claim to it at all. I'm so thankful that we, we do not have to acquire righteousness on our own, for we would be lost. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness protecting us. And our third piece is here. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now what does Paul mean by this? What, what actually is, is the armor here? Well, sometimes... It's helpful just to read other faithful versions of the Bible to compare. I grew up hearing this passage in the King James. Let's hear how it is phrased there. It says, having feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The New American Standard is a little different. It says, having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. All good interpretations for sure, but I actually really appreciate the simplicity of language provided in the Christian Standard Bible. It seems like the armor is really it's really readiness, but that readiness is only valuable if we carry the gospel of peace. And again, I can't help but think that Paul pulling from another Isaiah reference, this time in chapter 52, listen to verse 7 of Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Here the prophet is speaking in response to God's statement that his people will know his name and that God is amongst them. What good news. What good news for a people who at that time were in rebellion and disobedience. That's why the feet, the feet that bring good news is just another way of saying the gospel, of course. That's why those feet are beautiful and why Paul wants the feet of the people of the Ephesian church to be ready to bring the good news. And I am here this morning also bringing this good news to you. Now, just because you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning does not mean you are a Christian. The good news of the gospel for us, we proclaim every week. And every week we appeal to those in our hearing who are still outside the faith, living in unbelief. This armor we're spending all our time talking about, it it doesn't help you if you don't have Christ, if you haven't given your life to Christ, because again, it is his armor. The peace the gospel delivers, this peace by payment for sin that Christ gained on the cross on behalf of us sinners, it is available to you. Peace with God. Do you have this peace? Standing firm is not something we can do because we have some key knowledge or secret. Standing firm is in the strength of the Lord. It is in his power, providing that resurrection power I talked about back in the first point this morning. Listen to the word of God speaking to you this morning. Repent of your sin. Come to Christ, the one one who's armor we are talking about, the one who brings peace to your life, the rock of strength on whom we stand firm. And it is interesting, isn't it, that this armor includes the word peace, dressed for battle to bring peace. And of course, it's the Lord that brings peace. Think of chapter 2 right here in Ephesians starting in verse 14. For he, Jesus, he himself is our peace who made us both one, right? This would be Gentiles and Jews but refers to all of us in all of our ethnicities. Made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. It's gospel peace. First between us and God, then between us as believers. But even this peace is not met with welcome from all corners. This peace can actually invite and incite violence to the carrier of good news when the hearer's are under Satan's domain. And we see this as well today. Those who seek to bring the peace of the gospel into the lives of those around them are often met with the most hostile of responses outside of this country's borders, including punishment, imprisonment, torture, and death. Think about those feet in that situation. Feet ready to walk toward that kind of danger for the hope of the gospel to the lost. That's the readiness spoken of here. In our time and place, we should obviously take note of the growing opposition to the good news and recognize this is not something new. It wasn't safe in first century Ephesus and we shouldn't expect it to be safe now. But remember, this is not readiness to take up our own causes. Paul is not addressing a culture war. The readiness we are speaking of here is to bring the good news of Jesus to bear in any situation. So here's the question for us to consider Are you ready to deliver the message of Jesus? That salvation is only in him regardless of the outcome. Paul, he's saying we can when we put on the full armor of God together. I pray that we would just consider the weight as well as the privilege of that calling. Now, number four in our list of armor Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So how is faith a shield? Well, in the same way that Psalm 91 reminds us of these words. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield. The Lord's faithfulness is a shield. Now David writing this was most certainly in need of of physical help. But what he was really going after was the emotional and spiritual. And this is Paul's focus as well. I mean, when is your faith under attack? Consider the early church now, a band of diverse, mostly poor, partially outcast, fearful of physical harm at any point. All tactics and schemes of the devil are against the church. So the church declares its trust is in the Lord, and they raise the shield of faith, which can only be based on the Lord's proven faithfulness. To them, And certainly, though I'm stressing that Paul's language is collective, this certainly works on the individual level as well. We can each hold up our shield of faith to protect us against the devil's lies inside of our own heads. But even as I say that, we're not designed to fight these battles alone. You have a community of people with you. We help one another hold up that shield. Some seasons, you are holding it for me. Other seasons, I might be holding it alongside someone else struggling. Sometimes you need someone to hold it for you. We are helping one another. We need one another. Listen to Paul's words from Romans 1, 11 and 12 when he says, for I long to see you, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Our faith is a mutual encouragement to each other. The sum of the whole is greater than its individual parts. We are better together, friends, with the shield of our collective faith, Protecting us. Now, referring back to Isaiah 59, we see our fifth piece of armor. You may remember that from that passage, the helmet of salvation, right alongside the breastplate of righteousness. And I do think this is quite helpful. You see, if the Lord wears a helmet of salvation, it's because he's bringing salvation because he certainly doesn't need it. So if he's bringing it to us, if he's bringing the helmet of salvation to us, it is coming as a sign of victory, of the reality that we are already saved. This is the Christian, on the one hand, victorious in Christ, on the other hand, fighting a battle against spiritual forces as long as we call this broken earth our home. So this brings us to our last piece of equipment, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now you might notice that all the other pieces of armor, this one's the only one that isn't primarily protective. In fact, this this is a true weapon, something to go on the attack with. Certainly one uses a sword for defense, but it's primarily used to wield in the battle, in our case, against the forces of darkness. And isn't this just what Jesus did when he faced Satan in the wilderness? While Satan was was misusing Scripture, taking it out of context and misapplying it, Jesus used the word to refute Satan's twisting of Scripture. Even as he used it to refute the Pharisees' misunderstanding and misapplications of the law of Moses. Now a sword is a a serious weapon. Now let's say you would like to train your children to use swords. Now your first step probably wouldn't be to plop a long sword in their hands and say, all right, have at it. Next thing you know, the cat's lost his tail, the curtains are distinctly shorter, there's stripes in all the furniture that you didn't want there. Right, you wouldn't do that. Because a sword is dangerous. One has to be taught how to use it. Because using it badly can be damaging. So, in the same way, Satan used the scriptures against Jesus. And here's where it applies to us. Let's train to use the scriptures well, like Paul exhorts Timothy. Where he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. Approved workmen are not ashamed. This is the acronym that makes up AWANA, where we encourage children to memorize Scripture so they can rightly handle the word of truth. So when it comes to sword play, the church is the greatest training ground. How about life group? Swing your sword awkwardly around those who love you. Here's where we can learn our way around scripture, asking good questions, listening to those who swing the sword well, so that you can stand firm in the strength of the Lord. After all, it is his word. If you are using it well, it is the power of God for salvation. But after all that, we're, we're not quite finished because the passage itself isn't finished. I don't want to neglect the other side of the communion that the Lord has with us. The end of our passage, just this half verse, beginning in verse 18 here, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. The sword of the Spirit is the Word speaking to us, teaching us to stand firm. And this great God whose thoughts are are so far above ours, even still, encourages us to come to him. And Paul highlights that here as he talks about the word of God being the sword of the spirit. Here we are then to pray in the spirit with praises and requests. What a sweet way to wrap up the armor. So there's the outfit, the whole armor of God, looking at the individual pieces, but isn't it also true that there's an added value as all these pieces work together, right? Similar about how I tied the belt of truth at the beginning as a connecting part to all the other pieces. It's true that armor has a multiplying effect, right? Even as the soldier increases his ability to stand with each added piece of armor. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, God's word. So now we have heard the command to stand firm in the Lord's strength, not our own. How? By putting on the whole armor. Why? Because there's a battle raging before us. So now our call coming to us from the passages that we would stand firm in the Lord. This is something the Allies in Western Europe were unable to do in 1940. They had an alliance. They were together. They had Britain's special forces designed to move quickly and hit hard to help them. They had a plan. They thought they knew what Hitler was thinking. Yet they had no ability to stand. They didn't know their enemy's schemes well enough. So they were not ready for what Germany brought. And that is key for us. Readiness in the ability to stand. The question for us is, are we ready, willing, and able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil? I mean, do you believe you're in a battle? The armor is, is here for us as Christians to put on. But are we too busy feathering our nests or, or, or building a vacation home in a war-torn country, making efforts to live our best life for here and now instead of laying up treasures in heaven. We need to see the spiritual battle before us. It it, it is a spiritual battle, but it is happening within us, in our hearts and souls. This, This is where the church I mentioned before ran amok. Their focus on spiritual warfare This church plant, their focus on spiritual warfare being being out there left them vulnerable. As the church, they were left vulnerable to the actual battle going on in their hearts. When the pastors and elders should have been on guard against Satan's actual schemes, their unguarded pastor fell into sexual sin, shipwrecked his ministry, and destroyed the witness. Of that church. You see, though the battle is against the devil and the spiritual forces, the battlefield is right in front of us. It's in our homes, it's in our workplaces, it's right here in our church, it's in our relationships with one another, in our hearts. We are not fighting with the people around us. We as Christians should know better than that, shouldn't we? We have compassion for lost souls because we are all the same. This is how, it is that thought, is how the martyr Stephen from Acts 7 could genuinely forgive the men stoning him because he knew the battle was against spiritual forces, not flesh and blood. That's hard. So we take up the full armor of God that we would be able to stand not against people, not against our fellow man, but against wickedness, darkness, Satan's schemes, and those of his domain. Then we realize that standing firm is not a solo job. Right, just like Denmark, you can't expect to survive without help. In my view, the king of Denmark made a great call two hours in from the invasion to Germany. They were by themselves and they didn't have a chance. Their enemy was out, outmanned them, and there was no one coming to help them. Now, by comparison, the strength of armies in World War II is mostly about tactics and numbers. And the strength we're talking about goes right back to verse 10, strength in the Lord. The Lord doesn't need an army He can raise his own army from dry bones like he did in the desert for Ezekiel. His power is resurrection power. We've already talked about that this morning. The reason we're exhorted to stand firm together is because that's how God designed us to be. Not for strength, but because we're meant to work together. And to be alone isn't necessarily to be weaker on the battlefield, though that certainly may be true. But to be alone is to deny who God made us to be, the church. Just look at the rest of Ephesians, right? The repeated collective language exhorting us to reconcile with one another, work alongside one another, serve each other with our gifts, speak the truth in love to one another, forgive one another. Why would it make any sense for us to fight spiritual battles out on our own? standing firm in the Lord may feel lonely because the occasions and times that you are, are engaged in it, but the people of God around you now are the same ones who will be in prayer for you then, who will, who will not neglect you in your need as we as soldiers together live to fight another day. We all need to feel the call to engage the battle when it comes our direction, and to stand firm. May we stand in the strength of the Lord and in the power of his might. That same resurrection power he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, a place reserved for us in heaven. Then it will be a place of rest, a place of glory. But now we wrestle and we fight. Brothers and sisters, it is my hope that we would stand firm in the Lord, fully outfitted as a body of believers in the armor of the Lord. Let's pray. Great Father in heaven, you who have given us this armor, given us the power to stand firm, given us your Son Jesus to take away our sin. Lord, may we eagerly and joyfully And as a body of faithful servants, grow in the strength you have provided, putting on the armor that is truly yours, and live our lives seeing the battle before us. All the while, as compassionate soldiers for the lost, Lord God, help us to stand firm against the schemes of the devil to stand for truth and righteousness, rejoicing in our salvation, protected by our faith in you, ready to deliver the good news and hold high your word all the while praying for one another. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.